0: This is God's word. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, I get the honor to introduce our uh, guest speaker today. So Pastor Mike is our guest speaker. Uh, He's a lifelong Northern Californian. And he and his wife Kathy have lived in, <laughs> have lived in Alameda the um, majority of that time. Uh, they've been married a whopping 38 years. Congratulations. And uh, Mike and Kathy have two adult children and a grandchild in the Bay Area. Uh, Pastor Mike has been a church planner all over Northern California. He's church planted in Chico, in Santa Rosa, in Paradise, and San Francisco. Presently, he works as a consultant and pastoral coach for the uh, Reformed Church in America. And he serves the denomination nationally as a church uh, on the church multiplication team. Also, it's significant to mention that uh, Pastor Mike is our own, Pastor Mark's, church planning coach, so indirectly, he has had a lot of influence on us and our growth and our success are already, so it's, it's really a pleasure to have him here, and uh, let us welcome Pastor Mike.
1: It's great to be with you. <laughs> nice. Nice, love the liturgics. Yeah, um, yeah. I've uh, I was born in uh, in Redding, California, and uh, lived in that area till I was a freshman in high school. My dad and uh, and grandpa were uh, uh, were in the plumbers union, so they did a lot of uh, building on hydroelectric plants and. Uh, sawmills, paper mills, and then when Silicon Valley took off we moved to San Jose. Uh, so all everything was getting built. I mean I moved to San Jose when there were 150,000 people in San Jose. Uh, and uh, you know saw it grow to whatever it is now, a million. And uh, lived in uh, uh, East San Jose. That was that was a real stretch for a kid coming from sort of farm country living on a har- hobby farm. And then when we moved to San Jose, my dad wanted to have, you know, property big enough where he could park his plumbing trucks, and so that meant we were in East San Jose, which at that time was, uh, uh, was very, uh, and still is, very very, uh, very multicultural, uh, which uh, I think because of my, my, my roots growing up, my, uh, my family, I, I know I don't look it, but I'm uh, Native American, my dad uh, is a, a Choctaw. Uh, And so I always grew up around the reservation and around, uh, you know, people of color. But moving to San Jose, I remember I showed up for um, football practice uh, before high school. And I was in the locker room and there was this um, uh, young African-American guy sitting next to me. And I said, "Uh, could you tell me where the boys' room is? And he slapped me. And he said, "Uh, the the only boy in this room is you, you pasty face honking. (laughs) (laughs) That was a, uh, uh, it was a rude awakening, but it was one of those moments, it was a defining moment in my faith, you know, because I had grown up in the church, and I realized at that point I was living in a, in a different culture, and I was going to, my, I was either going to have to embrace my faith, or I was going to have to be a guy who got in a lot of fights. And uh, that, uh, that really became a time where I, I found my, my call uh, to ministry uh, developing Ended up, I went to local schools, went to San Jose City College, San Jose State University, worked with Youth for Christ. That's where I met my wife, Kathy. We were both volunteers with Youth for Christ, and I worked in their their youth guidance division, uh, which meant I worked with uh, a lot of the kids that I went to high school with, uh, but they were uh, uh, in trouble. They were at California Youth Authority in Tracy, they were at James Boys Ranch in Morgan Hill, uh, at the Juvenile Justice Center. And so I ran clubs at those places uh, for, um, uh, for kids. And um, uh, probably about my junior year of college, I got a phone call from the 7-Eleven Corporation. They said, we hear that you work with guys who are in gangs, and we have all these stores in East San Jose that we can't franchise because they're such high crime areas uh... would you become our night manager and hire people to work in those stores and so you know i started uh... you know doing uh, doing that kind of a crazy job And um, uh... during that time i was in a uh... uh auto uh, uh, motorcycle accident spent six months in traction at kaiser hospital in santa clara and when i got out seven eleven called me up and they said you know we so appreciate what you did those stores turned around we franchised all of them we want to to give you one of them as a gift, you just have to operate it for two years and then you can, uh, you can sell it. Uh, so uh, while my wife and I were in college, we had a Seven Eleven store franchise. <laughs> and it was, uh, it was the most funky Seven you've probably ever been in because we, we weren't gonna wear those polyester things with the red and white circles on them that they wore back then. So we, uh, and, and at that time I should say that my hair was down below my shoulders uh, I had a beard that made me look like I should have been playing with ZZ Top, and um, uh, so we we were sort of Jesus people. So we, we ran the 7-Eleven store, but we took out all the all the porn. At that time, they were the biggest distributor of uh, pornographic magazines, and uh, we took all that out and put in a classic book section. We took out all the cheap screw cap wines, and we we put in uh, you know local grown wines from you know Wente and Marisu and all the places down there. <laughs> Uh, my wife took our old pickup truck up, up to Half Moon Bay and would load it up with, uh, with plants. We put in a little nursery outside the 7-Eleven store. Uh, we put in an espresso machine next to the Slurpee machine. Uh, so th- this was back, you know, mid-'70s. I mean, we thought we were being, you know, hip and cool. And they, they did. They loved it. They thought, you know, oh, those funny, young, hippie couple, you know. So um, we've been around Northern California uh, for a long time, uh, my, my grandson is now fifth generation. Eli is his name, Elias Jackson Connell, uh, and um, uh, Eli is in Alameda, and there's a, a you know a shore in Alameda, Crown Beach. There, there's some really nice Bayfront uh, shore. Alameda, at one time, was sort of the the place you would go to from San Francisco uh, to to be on the beach. You know, you'd take the ferry across to Alameda. They had all kinds of Swimming areas and uh, uh, really, really nice beaches. Uh, recently, my grandson was playing on the beach, and he's almost three. I mean, he's he's just a little guy, but he um, uh, he loves superheroes. Uh, I mean, if you have or are around kids that are that age, you know that they love superheroes, dinosaurs, and trucks. Uh, and uh, now that's what boys like. I imagine girls like similar things, uh, but uh, he. Um, uh, at the beach recently, there was a little boy who was uh, getting hit by, by waves and he would cry out, help me, help me. And as soon as he would do that, my grandson would drop whatever he was doing and run over to him and you know, put out his hands. He, wa- he wanted to help him. And he would do this, you know, he probably did it two dozen times. Uh, and every time he did that, you know, it was, it was just one of those things where you, you went, oh, you know, but uh, th- uh, my son-in-law was saying, oh, I love that kid. I love that guy. And I realized that that's, you know, that's sort of what I was saying as well, that as soon as he would do that, that I, I would realize how much I, I loved him. And I, I started thinking about that because I, I think that that's something, that feeling, whenever we see someone acting in a heroic way, and this was acute heroism, but whenever we see someone acting heroically, there's something that's deeply wired in us where we go, I love that. You know, I really, I, I, I like that. I like when someone does that. You know, we, we celebrate it, uh, even if it's tragic. I mean, look at how long after 9-11 that we still sort of celebrate the heroics of the, the firemen and the policemen uh, in, in New York. You know, it, it causes us to take notice every time we see a fire truck that goes by. We, we think differently as a result of that event. They were always heroes, and they've always been celebrated, but there's, there's something about that, that heroic act that I, I think is deeply wired in us beyond simply the preservation of the species. And so today, what we're going to do is we're going to reflect on one way this deeply wired aspect of who we are as humans is reflected in scripture and in the text today it's described as justification and so i want to look at justification from the perspective of a heroic act of god and i want to answer really three questions one what it is two why you need it and three where it comes from And if you grasp this, what I believe it does for you, I think it makes you buoyant. Uh, I think that when you find yourself sinking, uh, when you find yourself underwater, I think that when you understand the heroic nature of God's justification, I think it makes you float. I think it gives you you buoyancy. So first, let's take a look at, at what it is. Verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. I think this begins to approach the... The definition of, of what what justification is about we 'll talk about the context in just a moment about what Paul is saying when he, he begins chapter five by saying therefore it 's a reference to all those things that have preceded it and we'll we'll talk about that. Um, I remember reading a story by um, by Jack Kelly, uh, the uh, uh, CNN reporter now Jack Kelly, if you remember, was discredited for not always telling the truth in his reporting and his stories. But there was one that was um, validated by the the crew that was with him uh, when uh, he was um, uh, visiting uh, East Africa uh, and uh, he was in an area that was particularly uh, blighted by famine that he and his crew came across a little boy who was making such a strong appeal that they stopped and they gave him what food they had with them, Uh, some fruit happened to be. And this boy got the fruit and he immediately ran away and they thought, oh we gotta follow up on this, there's a good story here. And so they went and they saw that this boy ran to his little brother who was so weak that he wasn't able to walk. And uh, wasn't able to hold the fruit. And so this little boy, you know, took the orange, broke it open, chewed on it, uh, put it in his little brother's mouth, and continued to do that with, with all the fruit that he had. And then went back to where he was enthusiastically asking people for food. And so uh, Jack Kelly and his crew, a few days later, uh, went to follow up on that story. They, they decided that this was a real good human interest story in light of the other things they were reporting on. They found out that the little boy who was gathering the fruit, had died of starvation. And uh, it, it really um, struck them. So there was, a, there was a whole layout on this little boy and on the, the, the plight of these, these children. But the, the thing that, that struck me as I looked at that was the nature of, of someone in relationship to another person who they loved so much that they were willing to sacrifice themselves and when we hear stories like that and we see things like that happen, it's the kind of thing that when we encounter it, it makes a lasting impact. Just like 9-11. It's one of those things that it, it gets etched in our memory where we go, wow, this, there's something about this that is so tragic and so good. There, there's something about this that, that saddens me deeply and it also gives me, me hope. But the thing I want to point out is the power to really shape us is so often found in our relationships to other people. Uh, The power for good and bad to shape us is located in relationships to other people. You know, in this case, it was a a power to, to, to give life. But if you think in the more mundane relationship of your own family, or if you're married, of marriage, and you say, am I the same person now as I was when I first entered into this relationship? In what ways have I been shaped? And again, it's not always shaping in a, in a good way, but I think we could say that we're, we're definitely shaped, that relationships shape us. When I look at the very concept of justification the word justification as as a concept is is based in relationship when i look at how it's used it's always used to describe relationship sometimes that word is defined not as justification but when we look in the text it's defined as righteousness so sometimes it's justified sometimes it's righteous But when it talks about righteousness, it's always talking about righteousness in terms of the commitments that we have in our relationships. It's it's talking about the the righteousness that uh, is exhibited by the way we live out the commitments, the responsibilities that we have within our relationships. So when I look at this word justification, which is, you know, we we would all agree that this chapter in Paul's letter to the church in Rome, Romans chapter 5, it's an important chapter. It's a big chapter in the New Testament in terms of its significance. But what I want you to do now is begin to, to think of justification in terms of relationship. I want you to see what it is. Uh, And uh, as we look at this text, in terms of uh, God talking about his relationship to us, because it's an important part of the definition of who God is, and it's an important part of what he wants us to be. I mean, if we were to summarize all of God's commandments in the words of Jesus, he would say, all of my commandments can be summarized in loving God and loving other people. And so if if that's what God wants us to do, justification is a way in which he does that. He comes to us and he rescues us. This is the way he shows what it means to love. This is the way he shows what it means to fulfill the commandments of God, to love God, to love others. He comes and he says, this is what defines me. You know, I came to justify I came to rescue. That's who I am. That's what. That's what God is. That's the way God defines Himself, His own character. That's why, in another one of Paul's letters, in the Book of Philippians, in Chapter Two, Paul um, uh, says that uh, Jesus Christ, though He was God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but He emptied Himself and He took on the nature of a servant and he gave himself even unto death. Therefore, God gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue confess. See, that's another one of those places where Paul is saying, here's the definition of who God is. Jesus has given the name above every other name because he emptied himself and he gave himself away. And so that's what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 5. Justification is a definition of who God is in relationship to us. Jesus demonstrates the righteousness of God. And God says, here's what that looks like. It looks like me coming and rescuing you. It looks like me coming and giving myself for you. That's who I am. So that's, that's what it is. But why do you need it? In one word, the reason you need it is estrangement. That we are estranged. Paul in Romans, up to this point, in Romans 1, 2, 3, and 4, he says you are created to be in relationship with God and with other people. But that relationship has been distorted. You are estranged. You are alienated. Uh, The relationship has been, been broken. You are created for relationship with me and for relationship with others, but that's been messed up. You've been made strangers. Think for a moment about that concept think for a moment about, about estrangement. Think about a relationship that you have that is strained in some way, either one that's recent or one that, that's, that's old. The fact is, if you perceive hurt, it's really hard for you to move toward the one who's hurt you. That if, if you perceive that there has been wounding, it's really difficult for you to move in the direction of the one who has, has hurt you. if we continue on in this chapter, in verse 3. Let me read all the way through 5. And not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Now, again, when we look at uh, suffering, sometimes it's easy to equate suffering with physical suffering or with financial suffering. But I think within the context of what, all that Paul has written that the suffering that he's talking about is most predominantly relational suffering. The, the suffering that we experience as a result of alienation from God. The suffering that we experience as a result of alienation from, from others. And so when, when he talks about what God is doing, he's saying that the solution comes when God pours his love out into our lives into our hearts when he pours his love into our hearts by rescuing us and by justifying us then all of a sudden it gives us hope to be able to endure the difficulties that we're dealing with perhaps even to move towards those uh, who have have caused pain in our life just because of time I, I, I want to quickly move on to how we get this. But, but I hope that you're able to see this is, a, this is a way of seeing justification, a way of understanding it. I, I want you to see why it is that you need it. You need it because you've been estranged. God is saying that He wants to give it to you, but, but how do you get it? Verse 6 in our text says, For while you were still weak, at the right time... Christ died for the ungodly. Now the rest of that paragraph, I think, unpacks that and talks about what that means. But I want to dwell on just that first verse because I think what it tells us is that it starts with self-awareness. It starts with you recognizing that there's something that you need to admit about yourself. It says at just the right time, god died for the ungodly that means we have to admit that we are ungodly we are not like him in the way that he loves we're unable to love god the way that god loves us we're unable to love others the way that god wants us to love others and so it it begins with an admission of our own powerlessness it begins with an admission that we ourselves are ungodly, that we uh, provide excuses or reasons uh, why it is that we, we can't have this reapproachment uh, to God or to others. But the other thing that this tells us, it says not only is there something to admit about ourselves, but it also reminds us that God loves us. And that's one of the most difficult things for us to comprehend uh, or to maybe appropriate. I think that we can say it pretty easily. You know, I think that uh, it's, it's one of those things where if I were to survey a group of people who are either deeply committed to the Christian faith or interested in the Christian faith uh, and, you know, tell me about God, you would, someplace within the first two or three things that you mentioned, you would say that God loves us. And so I, I think it's something where there's, there's some level where we, we believe that to be true, but there's also some way that we need to be reminded of that because we don't really believe it. I've been going through the Psalms over the last month, and probably the most repeated phrase in the entire uh, 150 Psalms is the phrase, the steadfast love of the Lord. It gets repeated in, you know, nearly every psalm. I think the reason is that so many of the psalms are are written as laments. Uh, They're they're written out of a sense of uh, alienation, out of a sense of oppression, out of a sense of deep sadness. And, And so this is something that we have to be reminded of. The psalmists, as these psalms are written, they knew that, that we need to be reminded that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases and we have to hear it over and over and over again sometimes it begins to ring true a, um, a young pastor that I have a lot of respect for just recently moved to San Francisco his name is Francis Chan and uh, we were um, uh, at a, a meeting where he was talking about a, uh, a wedding that he had performed. Uh, the um, woman who was getting married had a, um, uh, a 28-year-old daughter who had cognitive disabilities, uh, who functioned about uh, the level of a, of a six-year-old. And so this, uh, this 28-year-old daughter was the uh, flower girl uh, in the wedding. This mom was getting married. And the, the mom was just amazed because she had been through such a difficult life and had gone through so much suffering uh, that uh, as she was repeating her vows to, uh, uh, to her husband, uh, that she was really sharing the, the story of how she could not believe that he would want to marry her in all of her messiness and with all of the difficulties uh, and at her age you know and she went on and on that she she couldn't believe it and when they um, uh, she, she talked about her wrinkles and her husband and his response and his vows he said your wrinkles to me look like dimples you know that uh, I, I find you to be the most you know the most beautiful woman uh, in the world can't imagine spending my life with anyone uh, but you. And, and then they, they got to the place of exchanging the, the rings, and he pulled out two rings uh, because he had also had a ring for the twenty year old daughter. And he wanted to show her that, that he was not just marrying her mom, uh, but, but that she was, in a special way, a part of a new family. And as soon as she saw it, she started jumping up and down and just screaming, you know, "Uh, you love me, you love me, you love me. And she ran up and disrupted the wedding and just, you know, grabbed hold of his neck and was just hugging him. And uh, Francis Chan said, by this time, he said, everybody was weeping. He said, you know, that he doesn't cry at weddings, but that he was was bawling and everybody was, was crying. Uh, But of course, you know, a small gathering of pastors, what we all understood was what a picture this was of of the gospel and of the love of God, Uh, because God tells us that we are are his bride. God tells us that he is a father to the fatherless. Uh, He uses so many ways to describe what it means for Him to, to love us and to give Himself for us and to bring us in and to make us a part of His family uh, and to, to give us a, a sense of, uh, of belonging and a sense uh, of security, uh, a sense of not only being uh, rescued, but a sense of being completed, uh, a sense of being given a, a purpose and a future. And so when I look at this passage, it's so easy to look at it and dismiss it as a rich theological passage about what God does on our behalf through Christ. But I want you to see it in terms of what it means about who God is, what it means about the very nature and character of God who relentlessly pursues us in relationship and rescues us and brings us in and does it time after time after time it's not a one-time thing for me it's a daily thing it's something that I need and I need to be reminded of and rightly understood if you believe this it makes you buoyant and it keeps you from sinking keeps your head above water allows you to not only know intellectually that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases but to believe it in your spirit and to live accordingly. Let's pray. Lord, this is a familiar passage. And as I look around, I, I see us reminded in so many ways. I, I, I see it in my grandson, Eli, at the beach. I see it in Francis Chan's story. I see it in 9-11. I see it in saving private ryan i I see it in a million places i see it in the art on the walls that somehow you have communicated to us that justification is much more than a theological concept it's a way that you are and a way you relate to us help us to be made buoyant by belief that it applies to us we pray this in christ's name amen